wrapping up our uh, discipleship pathway. And uh, as we as we wrap, well, we're not wrapping up the pathway, we're wrapping up the sermon series on it called The Line. We've been talking about aligning our hearts, our priorities, and our mission with the heart of God. Trying to align our church around the priorities that God has given us in the Scriptures and align our programming around His mission. And so we've been looking at the discipleship pathway. Next slide there. And really it's four parts. First, you want to know God through worship and teaching. Then share community through life groups. Then learn discipleship and D groups. And then love the world through evangelism, missions, and service. And so as John mentioned last week, we talked about loving the world. And I just really want to encourage you to, to grab a domino and write the name of someone that you want to see come to know Jesus and put it back there so we can create a visual to remind us that we are called to pray and to go. But as we've been thinking about that, I want a couple thoughts before we pray and start the message today. The pathway that we've designed is less about creating and adding discipleship programs and more about creating a culture of discipleship. We want to be a church that is known for our discipleship. A a church where it's consistently part of every single thing we do, that we make disciples who make disciples, that we think about discipleship in our kids' ministry, in our student ministries, in our adult ministries, in every area of life, that we want to be making disciples. And we desire to see a lot of people being discipled. And so as we, we think of that, we need to create a structure where there can be People can be trained and we have a larger capacity to grow. So as we've been thinking through this, I just ask that you be praying, continue to pray for, for North Park and the direction we're heading and, and, feel, and next week, you know, submit your questions. We'd love to answer how God has been leading. So let's, let's pray today and we'll dive into today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you and, and we're so thankful for the truths that were sung this morning that our sins are many and we need your grace so abundantly and yet your mercy is more it's new every morning and that we can we can stand here today because jesus paid it all and so all to to you we owe so lord just help us as we open up your word speak to our hearts and allow the word of god to speak clearly in your name we pray amen have you ever been to a water park as you get older your priorities change when it comes to a water park when i was younger i wanted to go on all the fastest slides in the ride but as i've gotten older my favorite ride now at water parks is is that what's that the lazy river i love the lazy river it's the best ride at the water parks you sit in the tube and you just drift in a glorious wonderful and occasionally cold waterfall that shocks your system really quickly but it's wonderful and and I took my kids up to up to a place up north that has a water park and and we were in it and and I was trying to get my my son to do the 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 fast slide because I was like this is going to be fun and so we went up and we did the flat fast slide after like 2 years of trying to get him to do it and he loved it but then here was the problem he loved it so much he wanted to do it over and over and over again and there's a lot of stairs to get up to the fast slide. So on one hand, I was like, wow, that, that 10 seconds going down is way more fun than the lazy river. But on the other hand, getting up to the 10 seconds is not as fun. But it's interesting, when, when we think about the church, as I think about the church broader in America, not specifically North Park, I think a lot of times uh, people look at church kind of like a lazy river, like we want to come and, and the church is going to go a certain way and we'll just kind of go along for the ride. One preacher I was listening to this week described it as the arena church. 
Here's an arena that means a lot to me. Uh, no shot at those, maybe a little shot. But uh, in arena sports, here's what happens. There's, there's a crowd, and the crowd's role is to just cheer. And then you have some people on the team that don't really play. They're just kind of on the team, and you have others that, that play and participate. And I think in a broader American culture, I think church is often looked at kind of as an arena. You know, we come and we hear the message, and maybe we cheer on the pastor, and then we go home. And maybe some others are, are on the team, but they're not really playing the game. You know, they're kind of in the background, you know. And maybe they participate in some way, shape, or form. But when we look at the church in Ephesians 4, it really has this picture of every member is a minister. That we all have a role. That as Christians, when we come to church, we don't just come to watch. We don't just come to, to look. We don't just come to be, be kind of pushed along on a lazy river. We come to serve because every single member is a minister. And so I want to open up to Ephesians 4 and look at this because I believe if North Park is going to grow, if we're going to see people who don't know Jesus come to a saving relationship with Jesus, then we need to all get on this mission together. Ephesians 4.11 says this, So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip His people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So he starts off by saying this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And the apostles and prophets were established, were, were designed for the establishment of the church. So when you look back, apostles, that was usually the twelve disciples, and, and Paul was lumped into there, and the prophets in that New Testament church as it was established were those that preached in association with the apostles. Uh, Arkant Hughes puts it this way, the apostles and the prophets were given to the church to get her established. But now the role is assumed by the canon, eh, canonical writings of the New Testament. The apostles and prophets with their unique endowments did not extend beyond the apostolic age. I'm struggling with words today. But but basically God designed, as as the church was launched and established, there was these apostles and prophets, but we also have these evangelists and pastors and teachers. And the pastors and teachers are linked by the single definite article, and it could be one role or it could just be teaching pastors. There's a lot of debate about exactly, is he talking about two different roles or one role? But there's a common theme in these gifts, and that's the, the theme of teaching and preaching. So what is, why did God give us these roles? In other words, what is the purpose? What is my purpose as a pastor? What is the purpose of the elders? What are we called to do? So Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, as we look at this passage, there's some confusion where the comma goes. I like to call it comma confusion. In the Greek, we don't have the punctuation, so what happens is as they translate it, they have to make some decisions about what it means. But I think that punctuation is really important. I think some of these slides will show you the punctuation is important. Here's, here's the first slide. Um, I like cooking my family and pets. Okay, that's, don't be a psycho. I like cooking my family and pets. Three different things, good. One thing, not good. Here's the next one. Help a thief. 
and then the thief gets in the in the police car and they go away and they're helping them. You don't want to say help a thief. Help a thief. We need we need different punctuation. How about this one? Here we go. I want to thank my parents, Tiffany and God. Okay, well, we know this person is probably not correct in their theology, but if we put an extra comma in there, I want to thank my parents, Tiffany and God. That makes a little more sense. How about this? A man eating chicken, not a big deal, but man eating chickens, quite scary. Hyphens matter. How about, oh boy, syrup? That's fine, but oh, boy syrup, not good. Not good to have boy syrup. And how about, never give up is good, but never give up isn't very good. You want, don't want to tell someone who's trying to do it, never do that, just give up. Those are two different things. And so when we look at Ephesians 4, the translation and how you use punctuation has caused some confusion. In the King James Version, it translates this. So Christ gave himself apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of faith. Look how they phrase it because they put the semicolon in there. It's the job of the pastors and teachers. Three things for the perfecting of saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It breaks it down into three separate roles. You can go to the next slide there. So it looks as the role of the pastor and the teacher is to do those three things. The NIV makes an interpretive decision and it says this in the next slide there. To equip his people for the works of the service, the role of the pastor is to equip for the works of the service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And I actually think here, in this case, the the NIV has it right that the role of the pastors is to equip people, and our role as leaders is discipleship, but then the work of the ministry goes on to the people in the church. John Stott put it this way, The New Testament concept of the pastor is not a person who jealously guards all the ministry in his own hand and successfully squashes all lay initiatives, but of one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. His teaching and training are directed to this end, to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively but humbly according to their gifts in a world of alienation and pain. Thus, instead of monopolizing all ministry himself, he multiplies ministry. There's some different concepts that can come from this wrong view of the pastor doing all the work. First is a pyramid. You know, with the pyramid, the the pastor's on top and all the inferior little people in the church are below. And that's that's not the correct view. Another is the bus, where the pastor is driving the bus and everybody's just kind of going along for the ride. Now, I I think a, a biblical model for church is that the church is the body of Christ and every single member has a function and every single member has different spiritual gifts and they use those spiritual gifts to serve others so that God builds up the church. If I'm to summarize what I'm saying, first, as a pastor, and I would say also as elders, it is my job to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. But as a Christian, it's our job to do the work of the ministry. See, I think... In, in many places in America, there's been a mentality of discipleship means I show up, I listen, I go home. Discipling my kids means I show up, I drop off my kids. Someone else disciples them, I go home and live the way I want to live. But when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the picture of church, it's this idea of a body that everybody has a role 
In Romans 12, Paul put it this way. For just as each of us has one body with many, many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. In other words, however God has gifted you, wired you, created you, we each have unique gifts. And we're all, and God has designed us to be one body. And we'll look at Corinthians later, but essentially if one part of the body is failing, the other part of the body kind of has to pick up the slack. But if one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts. When you have an injury, it affects your whole body. And so when we look at the church, it's really one body. Paul Tripp, in his book Instruments, writes it this way. Your life is much bigger than a good job an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into His kingdom, and progressively changing them into His likeness. And He wants you to be a part of it. He wants you to be a part of it. Every member is a minister. It's not just the role of the church leaders. Ephesians 4 continues, So Christ gave Himself, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip His people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So as the people of God are equipped for the works of the service, they can use their spiritual gifts to serve God, to, 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 to live out their faith, so that this body, this one body at North Park Baptist Church will be built up. And that we will have unity in the faith. Now there's a sense that, that when God has, when we become believers, there's already a unity that exists. And if you've ever traveled, you, you've experienced this. I'm sure Mark experienced this last week when he met with believers in Bangladesh. There's this sense that when you go somewhere else with other believers, there's this inherent unity that comes with being a follower of Jesus. We're part of a broader church family. But unity also needs to be attained and maintained. Notice it says unity in the faith, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, doctrine is important. You know, we, we need to be unified around, I've said this consistently throughout my time here, unified around the Word of God and the mission of God. Unified around the Word of God and the mission of God. There are false teachers out there. And so when we talk about unity, you know, we, we don't unify with, with a different church that's teaching something that's inherently evil. And so as a church, we, we want to bring unity, but that unity is around the Word of God and the mission of God. Interesting, as I was reading the different commentaries, one common theme has come up time and time again. The more and more I study disunity, uh, a common theme always arises. It's this, pride. It's, I mean, it was, it was what caused Satan to fall. It's really a source of a lot of our sin. Is pride. It's when I think my view is better, or I'm right, or whatever it is, I have the best view, and then we, we take this 
prideful thought towards others. On, on the other hand, I think that humility leads to unity because it causes us to view ourselves in the right perspective as, uh, with God. But here it says that unity leads to maturity. Also, unity and mission are tied together. The, the mission of the church is greatly hindered by disunity. Remember when Jesus said, how will people know that we are his followers? In two different places, he said two things, our love and our unity. That's how people know that we're followers of Jesus, our love and our unity. So when we are disunified, the outside world sees that in us. But here it's talking about this corporate maturity, the maturity of the body of Christ that we will all be built up. It's not just an individualistic thing, although we do need to spiritually grow on our own. There's this corporate element that we as a body need to be unified and and built up, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This idea that as a church we want to be like Christ, this idea of ongoing sanctification. But there's this threat to unity and there's also a threat to maturity. In Acts 20, if you're reading this two weeks ago in the, in the, as you're reading through the, the reading plan, Paul is, is just getting to, ready to leave this area and he's torn because he loved these people. He's been living with them and he says this in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the elders here. Be shepherds of the church which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. There's a threat that comes to maturity and it's false doctrine. It's false teaching. Paul also addresses this in chapter four. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. When we're brought to maturity, we'll no longer be infants. One way to think about bringing to maturity is this. When we think about infants, there's one consistent trait. Infants can't feed themselves. They don't have the capacity. Someone else has to take care of them. And so when you want to grow in maturity, you have to learn how to feed yourself in the Word of God. Spend time in God's Word. Allow it to transform your your life. If you just show up every Sunday and expect me to feed you, I mean, I I hope that God uses the Word of God to, to, to transform your life. But at some point, you have to grow beyond the infancy stage and feed yourself, to dive into God's Word yourself, to allow Him to transform you by the renewing of your mind. But we see that immature believers are strongly influenced by persuasive speech. R. Kent Hughes said an immature believer is fickle, unstable, gullible, easily influenced by the latest book, preacher, fad. I I like to think about it like this. Have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese with kids? I enjoy Chuck E. Cheese. I I really do. I like to go like when there's no, I don't, I don't enjoy it on Saturdays or Friday nights. That's my no, no time. No, no to Chuck E. Cheese on Saturday. There's too many kids. They're not supervised and they're crazy. But if you go on like right after school, there's not a lot of kids. It's a blast. But there's one thing I don't like about Chuck E. Cheese. It's that counter with the tickets. You know what I'm talking about? When your kid's looking at all the options and they have that tickets and all the options really are bad. But there's some like good options up on the thing. So if they were wise with their tickets, they would hold on to them, you know, for next time and they could get a good item. But instead... 
They're looking at all the options and they pick a cheap toy that's going to break by 2 o'clock and you're there at 1.30. You know? And it's not going to last any longer than a half an hour. And instead of waiting for something that's valuable, they pick the flashy thing that looks cool. Well, immature believers, the second someone says something that, that seems right or good, it's, it's just, they're settling for that little thing that, that looks good at the time and they're, they're missing out. You know, uh, you got to be careful when you turn on the TV and say, hey, I'm going to listen to some preachers on TV. I missed church today, so I'll just tune in to whatever channel has this. This, this last uh, week I was uh, on Facebook, and normally, you know, I, I, I try to stay out of, you know, arguments and stuff. But it's been really interesting to see uh, Kanye West, who's a, a popular rapper, has professed faith in Christ, and, and there's been some really good things that have happened. And, and this week or next week or soon, he's going to uh, Lakewood Church, which is Joe Osteen's church. It's this huge church. I think it's the biggest church in America. And uh, Gospel Coalition wrote an article, an open letter to Kanye West, basically warning him that he was going into uh, false teaching. And so he's going to a church that was going to teach that. And uh, I was reading through the comment section, which is always a fun place to go. Um, but it was interesting. Someone said, who are you to say that Joel Osteen is a false teacher? Who are you to say that? And I said, well, actually, it's his books and his writings and his sermons that say he's a false teacher because he teaches this gospel that's not really the gospel um, it's all about having your best life now, and if you if you pray it and you name it and you complain it, not complain it. If you claim it, sometimes I'm complaining it, but he actually claims it. Then God will do this thing. That's a lie from the pit of hell. How do I go to Tony and tell him you just didn't have enough faith? A man of God that has lived with a passion for God and right now is walking through this horrible season and his family's mourning and Ben wasn't here today. And it's because our, our world is broken and God doesn't always heal and he doesn't always make everything go together. How do we look at the New Testament and find a prosperity gospel? How do you look at 11 of the 12 disciples being martyred for their faith and say, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy and wise? How do you look at Paul who willingly walked into Jerusalem knowing he was going to be imprisoned and beaten? The Holy Spirit had told him. He walked into it knowing he was going to be imprisoned. How do you look at the health and wealth and prosperity gospel in light of the fact that Paul had to go around to different cities to, to get money to send to the Christians in Jerusalem because of their faith, because they had lost their jobs and they were living in tremendous financial hardship. And so Paul traveled to take up offerings to help the Jewish Christians. See, it's really easy for us as Americans to sit back in our prosperity and our wealth and say, yes, God wants to bless us. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, to plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And think that means that God's going to financially prosper us. That if we just give more, then God will, then we'll get more. But that's, man, it's so easy to think that way. In our culture, we, we tend to think of prosperity as good and, and, and financial struggles is bad. And so therefore, if I'm a Christian, then God is going to bless me. And so we turn on these TV preachers and we go, that looks good. And then he says, and I need to buy a new jet. And we go, wait, that doesn't really sound right. But okay, here's 20 bucks. Buy a new jet. See, the problem is that 
if you don't feed yourself and you don't dive into God's Word and you, and you don't have this consistent daily time with God's Word, then it's going to be really easy to, be, to, be, to have these false teachers come and, and say things that, that seem to make sense. And I'll go beyond that. It's not just people that claim to be Christian. Our culture right now is redefining gender, sexuality, morality. It's redefining all those things, and they frame it in a way that would be easy as a Christian to go, well, that sounds good. Sure. Yeah, God calls us to, to love everyone and accept those, so, so we, need to, we, need to, we need to get on the bandwagon here. And it becomes really easy to, to compromise because if you're an immature believer, it's, it's, it's easy, like it says here, to be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. See, Satan is like a lion. He's, he's seeking to devour us. And so doctrine has to be important. We have to study God's Word. It says in verse 15, Then instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. John Stott says literally this means truthing in love. It goes beyond just speaking and goes to living it out. Now I want to look at this scale here. Now here's the danger. Most people are either really good at truth and not that good at love, or really good at love and not that good at truth. Even as I confidently call out Joel Osteen, um, I know there are a lot of other preachers that I have heard called out that I'm like, why in the world? Have you, have you listened to their sermons? Their doctrine is good. You might disagree with them on this little minute thing, but, but they're calling that person a false teacher. So there's such a danger inherent in calling people a false teacher, and that's why you know, I, I usually am a lot more cautious with it, but with Osteen, it's been in his books and it's, it's, it's been everywhere. Which, and he's someone that is on TV all the time, so I'm, I'm willing to warn you. But, but it's this idea of truth and love, and I think most of us tend to to fall either on the full truth and no love, and so we're all man. We're gonna we're gonna say when people are wrong, but we do it in such a way that dishonors Christ. And then others, we're all about love, but then we have to make compromises on the truth. And there's this beautiful balance that comes with maturity, with truth and love. And it is a hard balance to achieve, but that's what Paul is saying, that we speak the truth in love. I love what John Stott said about this. He said that truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. I'm going to repeat that again because I really love that quote. Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. There's this beautiful thing that we seek to do as believers is to lovingly and truthfully speak into people's lives. What oftentimes people don't understand, we live in a culture that has accepted this premise that unconditional love equals unconditional acceptance, and that's not true either. You know, I, I love my kids, and because I love them, sometimes I tell them, don't do this, because I love them. Sometimes I tell, tell them, like, what you did, what you said was wrong, because I love them. When we love someone, then we tell them the truth. We tell them things that they need to hear, but we seek to do it in a loving way. And people don't always hear it in a loving way, but that is what we have to do. First Peter 3 
We're to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope we profess, but to do this with gentleness and respect. So we live in such a way that people notice we're different and they ask us why, and then we give that reason for the hope, but we do it in a way that shows gentleness and respect. We live in a culture that I think, at least on social media right now, there's everybody has their own truth and they're pretty loud about it and there's not a lot of love. But we have the real truth. And we're called to share that truth with love. But what happens is we speak the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. When we as a church speak the truth in love, we will grow to be more like Christ. Verse 16, From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part does its work and grows and builds itself up in love. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes how as believers we're one body. And one person might be the eye, another person the ear, one person might be the foot, another person the hand. But they all work together. The hand can't say to the foot, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a foot so I'm not going to do these things. This is a beautiful picture. But then the next chapter in 1 Corinthians is called the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not self-seeking, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love rejoices with the truth. I forgot the next one, it always protects, it always hopes, it always trusts, always perseveres, love never fails. So after talking about all these gifts, if you exercise your spiritual gifts without love, then it's just like a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. It doesn't do anything effective. And so as a body, we have all, all have different parts. And I've shared this story, but when I had surgery, you know, I'm, I'm all wrapped up and I can't use my right arm. And for that time, the rest of my body has to compensate for the lack of my right arm being able to be used. And so two applications. This one, sometimes as a church, we're limping around because people who have the ability to use their gifts aren't using them, and so then we could have an arm that's working, but we're wrapped around with our arm in a sling. A second thing happens is that sometimes people's arms are in a sling because of their life circumstance, and so then we as a body, we hurt with them, and so we overcompensate. That's part of the body. When one part isn't functioning correct, the rest of the body kicks in. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one part suffers, every part suffer with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so when someone else in the church, when, 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 when they go through a tough time, then we as a body come alongside them. It's part of the beauty of the body. We come alongside them to help them, to support them through that next part as they're unable to use that limb. So the body creates this beautiful picture But as we think through all of this, the question is, how can biblical church growth happen? When I say growth, I mean on three different levels. One, I mean spiritual growth. I want to see our church grow spiritually. Two, I mean evangelistically. I want to see people come to know Christ. And then three, discipleship ishly. I'm trying to make up a word. It's hard to make a word on the spot. But that once those people become believers, that they then be are, be, are become disciples and are discipled. He says this, How does church growth come? One, through gifted leadership. We saw that, that God has appointed some to be apostles, pastors, teachers. Then dependence upon the Holy Spirit teaches and lives out God's Word, truthing and love, lives out God's Word. 
Second, through discipleship, in which God's people are prepared for works of service and are using their gifts to the fullest, whatever their parts may be. Three, through progressive corporate maturity of God's people, so that all are riding high on the tide of one another's lives. And fourth, through truthing and love, transparent, honest, loving speech and lives. This is church growth. And so as we look at this discipleship pathway, what we're seeking to do is to align our hearts with the things that God cares about. We're seeking to come and say, God, we know that you've given us your word. And so, Lord, we want you to change our hearts through your word. We want to be diligent in studying your word. We want to dive into this and allow this to be the lens through which we see everything else. We want God to align our priorities. As we look at how we live out our daily lives, are we prioritizing the, the plans and purposes of God in our lives? And we want to align our mission. God, are we on mission? See, because Ephesians 4 teaches that every member is a minister, you know what that means? The Great Commission is not a suggestion, it's a command for every single one of us. And if we want to go out and impact these neighbors with the good news of the gospel of Jesus, of Christ, of Jesus Christ, we need to take the mission seriously. We need to first ask God to change us, to change our hearts, to change our mission, to change our priorities. And then, and then ask the Lord to send us. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So we ask the Lord to send us out into the, into the harvest fields to go with the mission of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've called me as a pastor to equip the saints. And Lord, I pray that you'll give me, you'll give the leaders, the elders, wisdom as we seek to equip the saints for the works of the service. I'm glad that you've called each of us. We all have different gifts, different abilities. God, we, that you'll use each of us for your service, for the works of service that you've called us to do. Ephesians 2.10 Lord, you, you say that you've prepared good works in advance for us to do. So, Lord, just lead us towards those and help us to live on mission, to see disciples made in, to the very ends of the earth. Use us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.